what did Jesus do for us? What did he actually do for us? Having that clear can make you a lot more confident in your evangelization. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dave, the Mercy Seat Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? <laughs> I love it. You are my Mercy I'm, Seat. I'm imagining myself as the Ark of the Covenant right now. You should. You should. <laughs> you're the Isn't old, that where you're the Mercy the old Seat Ark is? Of the Isn't that covenant. what the Mercy Seat Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I've been reading a lot about actually. This it's funny that you say that. I've been reading tons about the Babylonian exile right now. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do a series um, called Surviving Babylon because um, just of just trying to deal with the world right now, you yeah. know. And um, and so I've been reading a lot about the Babylonian exile, and it's that man. It's interesting, right? Because. For most of the Jews, you have, you know, that one psalm, I can't remember which one, is it 73, where they're like, life was horrible, you know? Mm -hmm. It was the worst thing ever. But then if you were aristocracy, or I don't know, what would what would Jewish aristocracy, yeah, yeah aristocracy, yeah, yeah. I guess. They took them in and like schooled them in the Babylonian lifestyle and fed them sumptuous foods and everything like that. And this is like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, you know, like, yeah. uh, and you know, I mean, they did, they tempted them in all things they could to try and get them to turn away. Mm -hmm. Anyways, it was, it was interesting. By the rivers they, of Babylon. Yeah. Yeah. That's a scary Psalm. It is. It is. Yeah. I mean, it talks about like bashing their children's heads in like it's, it's a, it's like a terrifying thing to read in scripture. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what's really cool? So when I, I do this prison ministry, right, that's been on hold, I think in two weeks now, it, it was about a month, now I think it's two weeks, I can go back into the prisons. Um, but they cool, were- Cool, that's great. Yeah, they just had a meeting on Thursday about lining stuff up. But um, one of the great things that uh, came of that was I would work with the Jewish group because they've never had a Jewish outsider do ministry for them. And so they asked me to be their chaplain and then COVID hit like two weeks later. So, uh, but I had done a pretty intense study of the intertestamental period, what, what Protestants would call it. Obviously we have Maccabees, but about 150 years before Christ and the Maccabean revolution and all those different things. But it's funny how much of Judaism at the time of Christ was formed by the Babylonian captivity. Yeah. Because in Babylon, obviously, you know, so you have one Malachi, the righteous shall live by faith. If we can't offer sacrifice, what do we do without our temple? Well, you live by faith in as strangers in a strange land. After Babylon, they were one fiercely monotheistic. And it, it was almost as if that exile cleansed them culturally of polytheism, at least of the Canaanites. And then, of course, you have that wave with with um, the Hellenists, the Greeks. But then uh, it created one a house of prayer. Okay, right. One, a two, a house of study, and three, a house of law or adjudicating the, you know, within the Jewish law. And the house of prayer and the house of study, Bet Midrash and Bet whatever, I can't remember what the house of prayer is called, merged into the synagogue. Right. Right? And that, is, that was spread by the, the Pharisees. Yeah. And, and I just find that so fascinating that these things that happened 500 years before Christ endure to this day, Right. And here in the Woodlands, the local synagogue synagogue is called Temple Bet Shalom, 
house of peace, but it's not a temple. Temples where sacrifices happen. Right. 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 And it's so fascinating that rabbinical Judaism came from Pharisaical Judaism. And it's just wild. And if we don't know any of this stuff, like I just went through Bergsma's Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, cool. I I would I, I think that's required reading now. Are you kidding it, me? For Catholics. It is so good. Wow. And it is so shocking. Like because if you study scripture at an academic level, for many people, they lose their faith. Right. Because you go from, uh, and Bergson said this, he said, when you study authorship of, in the New Testament and you take one New Testament class in grad school, they, like everyone that goes to church feels like, yeah, Paul wrote Galatians, Paul wrote First Timothy and Second Timothy. You go there, Paul didn't write anything but Romans, yeah. right? And everything is questioned and all this stuff. Right. It's like the Germans question everything, but Paul's authorship of Romans. And I say this because it was so, it's so demoralizing when we get into the critical method, but um, and because it's all predicated on no Jew would have said the things that Paul said. No right. first century. It, this is all... Gnostic, you right. know, later, and then you find that it is all in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right, right. That you and the Dead Sea Scrolls, this Qumran community in in uh, the Dead Sea, I've been there. which was a monastery basically. Yeah, they had what they called the camps, referencing Exodus migration. Uh, they called them the camps. They were all over. They were they were like the synagogues, right? And people and people who didn't even belong to the Essenes would send their kids. Like, like, uh, Josephus was educated right. in that monastery. Right, right. They would send their kids. They think that John the Baptist was educated there. He wasn't one by the time of, you know, we encounter him in the gospels, but like, it's so fascinating to see, like it undermines, I would say 150 years of German historical critical scholarship. I love Bergsma. I love him. Yeah. That's his thing. And That's he does his... in that book. Yeah. In that book, he does it so well because he go he he doesn't say like I'm a Catholic and I'm here to give you Catholic theology and how it's backed up by the Essenes. What he does is like here's the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ that is anticipated so much by the Essene community. Right. And then he goes through, but he he'll it'll tackle big issues like marriage, the priesthood, celibacy for the kingdom, and um, he goes through the la very last chapter, which is kind of our subject today, is on the Reformation works of the law which was a major way of understanding atonement theology, Okay, right? What does the phrase works of the law mean? Because outside of Paul saying it eight times, six in Galatians, two in Romans, it's not, it's not said in ancient literature. Right. Until we discovered in 1948, there was literally a document called Four Quamram MMT, and uh, it means works of the law, concerning works of the law in Hebrew, the name of the document is that, and guess what the works of the law are exactly what St. Jerome said. The ceremonial precepts of keeping Sabbaths and feast days, ritual purification, circumcision, it's all that. It's all the stuff that Paul said, we don't need to live by works of the law. And it's fascinating that this thing that happened that we don't know until 1948 right. vindicates, yeah, vindicates the Catholic side of the Catholic Protestant debate. I mean, St. Thomas Aquinas, it belongs to the governmental and ceremonial precepts, not the moral law. And Luther very much said, no, it belongs to the, the whole thing, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, all of it is works of the law. Oh, man. I, now, I gotta, now I have to it's read so it. It's so good. I, and it's on you Audible. Got me, you got me real excited. It's on Audible. So I was like, okay. yes, yeah, you, you know, you know, I don't do that. I don't do listening. <sighs> Dave. Um, Dave. <laughs> The uh, you know when I uh, growing up in my house, my dad had 
replicas of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Did he really? And I used to think they were the yeah. I, I used to think they were the coolest things ever. They were in these little pottery things that they found them in, and then you could roll them out. Oh, that's awesome! And he had these replicas. That is yeah, awesome. Cool. I love your dad. I wish I got to know him. <laughs> and, I wish I got to know. Him. And I went. And, and I went to. And he took me to Qumran when when we went to Israel. We went there. No. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We I'm leading there. a pilgrimage yeah. to Israel. Did I tell you that? Gomer, I am. I'm. I'm going to be really angry at you. Why? Why are Why are we not doing it together? We. I mean, we could, but this is like who, a, a who? small group here at my parish. Oh, and they're paying okay. for me, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> the next step for us is to lead a pilgrimage. It is. It is. Me and Luke are going to lead one first to Latvia, but then after that, we'll go to wherever you want to do. Who would ever go with you to Latvia? Uh, a lot of Catching Foxes fans who want to see no. its beauty. Yeah, we were number one in Latvia. I know that. We were number one somewhere. I mean, come on. We were number seven I mean, in the on. Cayman Islands. That was nice. <laughs> Ooh, now that, I'd go with you, yeah. too. <laughs> David Gomer, <laughs> live in the Cayman Islands. We set up our <laughs> LLC down here. <laughs> don't ask questions. <laughs> You know, the, the, in case people don't realize, you know, what, what we were talking about there before, like when they, when people, when the historical critical method says, well, a Jew would never talk like Paul. Yeah. The, the problem with that, that might seem kind of benign to you, but the problem with that is then they also apply it to cultural norms. So they'll say, well, Paul said homosexuality was wrong because he lived in a time when they all believed that homosexuality was wrong, right? Yeah. Like historical critical method goes so much further than what's in the text. It's, yeah. it's terrible. Yeah, it is. It is. So buddy, why don't you buddy? I don't know why I called you buddy. That's the name of my dog, by the way. You do not look like my dog. He can't bet. I took the cutest pictures of my dog last night. <laughs> I was doing work on my deck and it came right next to me and sat in a lawn chair and, and it was awesome. Is this the same um, dog that snored so loudly during the evangelization boot camp? We might as well give him a third that, cut. <laughs> that that was that was ha that was half of his snoring. I mean, that wasn't even as bad as he normally. Does he does he have COVID? Is that she, the problem? She she she. she have no no. She's all no. She's a she's an English bulldog. She's very very picky about things and <laughs> and she gets what she wants. Um, uh, but no, okay. So let's talk about the topic today. Okay, okay? so we're, fundamental. Catholic topic that never gets talked about, yeah. in my opinion, yeah. is the atonement. Yeah. Something you obsess about. I'm starting to obsess about. You're right. Well, I mean, in the last six months, I'd yeah. say. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something that everybody else takes for granted, but we shouldn't. Right. Well, lead us in. We absolutely shouldn't. Yeah. We absolutely shouldn't because it's, like I was saying earlier, it's part of the division. Wait, can you just, can you just throw it out, though? What is it? What is the atonement? Okay, so in, in, in the least technical terms, the atonement is uh, theories of atonement describe what Jesus did and how it accomplished our salvation. Okay, so the focus is not on justification, which is the other, you could say it's the other side of the coin. So you have the Paschal mystery, how the actions of Christ on the cross and resurrection accomplished for us our salvation justification is the our salvation part but atonement is how did jesus reconcile man's sinfulness to an all-holy god right and that uh dave i love how as soon as we get into atonement theology you fire up the candles it's smelling nice around you he's literally lighting candles what smell is that what scent is that whiskey and tobacco <laughs> 
you're kidding. It is. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I swear. No, I love. I, it. I mean, I've never, I've never had whiskey in my life, but it's supposedly it's whiskey and tobacco. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so atonement theology, whiskey and tobacco. Uh, so the idea of it is there are many different theories of atonement, and the church doesn't super define all of the stuff about atonement theology, but it does mark out areas that you can't hold right, uh, famously right. in the Council of Trent. You, the The main thing being, and this is in the Catechism, uh, I think it's 603. Let me see if I can bring it. Yeah, it's 603, where he said, Jesus did not experience reprobation as if he himself had sinned. But in the redeeming love that always united him to the Father, he assumed in us the state of our waywardness of sin to the point that he could say in our name from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, when you click the old 405 footnote, it doesn't reference the Council of Trent, which is what it's coming from. The idea of he did not experience reprobation, he took our guilt, but was not punished by God as if he had sinned, right? And so um, the the contraries of that, and it was really the Calvinist branch of Christianity. I mean, it's both of them of in Luther and Calvin, but it's more pronounced in Calvinism where the idea of it was that God the Father looked at his son on the cross and damned him. And Jesus, being God, was able to unite his human nature to all of us, so he took our damnation. But God the Father hated his son and because his son had become sin, so he hated his son and poured out all of his wrath on his son so that the, divine, the sense of divine justice could be appeased, and the gates of heaven could be unlocked. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, Dave, but that is literally all I was ever told about the atonement. Yeah, well, and I was, unfortunately, I was told a lot. In so many words, I was told that by many Catholic people. That's what I'm saying. Many, many, and, and the, yeah, many theologies. But uh, it, it is, you know, with some of the Protestant theologians, it's more nuanced than you said it, though. Oh, for okay. And yeah. this is, uh, that, I'm glad you said that. Now, in the Protestant world, there are, there is not an, a Protestant theory of atonement. Right. There are theories of atonement, and in fact, a lot of Protestant theologies as of late are trying to resurrect a lot of the church fathers and their views of atonement theology, which the Christus Victor being the main one, um, that's been more I, or less I, led I, by. What I really like the Christus Victor one. Yeah. I really do. Yeah, well, that's I the really theology like of the fathers. It. I mean, it really is yeah, right, right. in depth. And so we'll, I just wanted to highlight some of this stuff so that we can explain when we're bringing the gospel to people and they ask well, why did Jesus have to die? That's the number one question I get from people who are on the verge of converting in prisons. But why did he have to die? I didn't ask him to, like, they because they don't want to convert, but they feel compelled. So this one guy, he said, I didn't want Jesus to die, so now he's dead, and now he dies for me, so I'm obligated to him? Like, that's weird to me. Like, I don't want him to die. I want him to live. And I'm like, okay, okay. Well, he does on Easter Sunday. Yeah. But but because a lot of the times when they're evangelized, it's almost like a guilt trip. He did this for you, therefore you owe him, right? And yeah. it's weird. It's kind of the exact opposite. It's kind of the exact opposite of what the cross is meant to be, right? And so it it becomes a sticking point for a lot of people. Well, let me throw let me throw some speculation out there for you, and you tell me where I'm wrong. Yeah. Okay? It seems focusing solely on the cross is a bad way to explain atonement hmm. because okay. it seems so to me that out a little bit. And yeah. It go. seems yeah. to me that incarnation is more important than the cross. 
as important. How about we say as important yeah. so I don't get in trouble? As important. Yeah. yeah. I think so. Well, more important. I'm going to say more important. We It couldn't have happened without... He could have done other something other than the cross. He could not have done mm. something other than the... the I just said inauguration. He wasn't inaugurated. <laughs> the incarnation. He couldn't have done something yeah. other than the incarnation. Right? I mean... Mm. Okay, so let me let me throw this yeah, into go. the mix. When you look at the catechism of the Catholic Church, a common critique of a creed-based catechism is it says Jesus was born and then now we're on to Jesus' suffering and death. It skips over, you know, that whole thing of his life. Right. And so um, the catechism doesn't do that. And it starts off in paragraph three under uh, chapter two, section two, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only son of God. Uh, paragraph three is called the mysteries of Christ's life. And I have been reading this and rereading this. This is where the Catholic, this is where the apostolic faith, so what we share in union with the Orthodox, comes right into what you were saying. We need to understand that the whole life of Christ is a mystery, and thus the whole life of Christ is salvific. Right. So because of the incarnation, Jesus united his divine nature and, and his divine personhood. He united to his divine personhood our full human nature in its fallen state. So what that means, and this is so powerful, is that the alienation between man and God is overcome at the incarnation, yeah. right? The alienation between man and God so, is overcome at the incarnation. So, so, all right, let me let me push further, and I'm actually yeah. going to maybe pull in a dissident theologian here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> here we go, Hans Kung time. No, no, not, <laughs> not him. I will never. Um, the It's... It's still the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I, and what I am going to argue and what this dissident theologian who I think correctly argues mm -hmm. is that the incarnation is it's it's an act of spiritual poverty. Okay. It's the poverty of the Lord. Right. He gives up for a time. Uh, no, I can't say that. He gives. Why? You can't. I can't say he gives up his divinity for a time. He gives up. He veils his divinity. He veils his divinity. Let's say that. He veils his divinity for a time, which is an, an act of sacrifice, right? He he puts himself he impoverishes himself, let's say that. Okay. And so the cross is not the only sacrifice. The the incarnation is a sacrifice, and it's it's the whole thing from beginning to end. Okay. So then my question for you is why the incarnation if not the sacrifice? So let me let me put it this way. Okay, so I'm going to back up what you said in two quotes. Yeah. Philippians chapter 2, yeah. right? Jesus, you have the great hymn of Jesus. Um, have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but right. he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. That's part one. Part two is, and became obedient unto death, death. even death on the cross. Okay, and then right from that, you walk into 2 Corinthians chapter 5 or 8, mm -mm, chapter 8, chapter 8, which is uh, where he says that great line, though he was rich. So let me let me just quote it right here. Do, do, do. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. So he self-emptied, right? That's the kenosis. And then finally, I'm going to say Hebrews 1 and 2. The whole point of Hebrews 1 is to show that Jesus is not an angel. He's superior to angels. Right. But Hebrews 2 is, but for a little while, he made himself lower than the angels. Yeah. Right. And he quotes a psalm, uh, 
who is the son of man that thou carest for him? Thou didst make him for a little while lower than the angels, and thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. But here's how that comes about in Hebrews. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I love that line because I'm like, everything, Jesus is the head of everything, but I don't see it yet, right? Yeah. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So you got that, right? That lower, that for a little while, crowned with glory and honor. Okay, awesome, the resurrection and the ascension, right? And then this word, which freaks me out, because, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the emphasis is on both the death of Jesus and the incarnation and the resurrection. So they, the church is very careful to say that, the incarnation and his whole life is a revelation from God the Father. Okay. But the fullest manifestation of the Father's love for humanity right. Right. is in the death on the cross. Right. Right? Right. So, you, so, so uh, yeah. So, Johannes Metz is who I'm talking about. He wrote in his book, Poverty of Spirit, he talks about how the entire life of Jesus is an act of spiritual poverty, right? That he veils his yep. divinity. But yeah. that the ultimate act of that poverty is to finally literally relinquish life, yeah. which had no hold over him, right? And so it's an it's that book in particular is excellent, but he he can't be trusted in other places. <laughs> so in, in Catechism paragraph five seventeen, it says the whole Christ's whole life is a mystery of redemption. So it's not so as I think in the West, all we do is fixate on the cross. Right. Right? But that makes sense for Protestants, especially those Protestants who do not have liturgy and sacraments, because for them, it's my acceptance of the death of Jesus through faith and his resurrection by which I'm saved. But for Catholics, and it's so fascinating, the, the Paschal Mystery of Christ is the engine that powers the sacraments, but his whole life is communicated. His whole life is salvific. So if his whole life is salvific, the sacraments put me in touch with his whole life. So then the next sentence is, redemption comes to us above all through the blood of the cross. But this mystery is at work through Christ's entire life, already in his incarnation, through which by becoming poor, he enriches us by his poverty. In his hidden life, by his submission, atones for our disobedience. In his word, which purifies its hearers, in his healings and exorcisms, by which he took our infirmities and bore our diseases. And in his resurrection, by which he justifies us. So paragraph 517 is a very important paragraph that I have never heard quoted in Catholic circles about theology. And this is one of the interesting things. I love the Orthodox, even though the Orthodox tend to get very polemical when it comes to Catholics. Because I, I am constantly surrounded by anti-Catholics in Oklahoma and Texas that I'm like, look, they have the sacraments, they have the priesthood, they have tradition. Right, right. I love them. But there are so many like institutional hurdles between us and them, um, theological hurdles that I think I, Catholics tend to minimize. But this was something that I learned from studying the Orthodox, and here it is in the catechism. Like, It culminates in the cross because that's how far the self-emptying love of God goes. Right. But his whole life anticipates the cross. So his whole life is salvific. We need to recover that in an explicit way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, it's such a compelling part of the kerygma. Yeah. It's such a, this is, this is such a compelling thing to understand. Like, I mean, it, 
I I'm still regularly converted by this. Yeah. By this this part of Christology, you know, I'm regularly converted, and I think um you're right that the the West has kind of lost the other part of this, like that they focus on the cross. Do you know what's interesting about it? Hmm. In in the exorcism community and in and academic exorcism as far as academia goes, it has a more full view of the entire atonement. Um, and puts a lot of emphasis on the incarnation. And I've even like seen ancient um, exorcism prayers that talk about just daily things that Christ did, you know, like normal things like washing hands and, and eating and those kinds of things, because the incarnation is so important, right, to, um, yeah. to uh, like conquering, well, reclaiming what the devil took. Yeah. And so you look at that, the whole life of Christ is mystery. The whole life of Christ communicates the saving love of the Father for humanity. And so, I mean, that when you walk through the catechism and you try to understand this, how, how you know, where do you go? We well, don't just go to Christmas. You can. But the catechism goes through his whole hidden life. So think about this, Catechism 531, during the greater part of of his life, Jesus shared the condition of the vast majority of human beings, a daily life spent without evident greatness, a life of manual labor, right? Like you start to think about Jesus's life, and this is where the Catholic Church, uh, which I find is so fascinating, the Catholic Church in academia often fails in producing the synthesis of Catholic faith, but in her spiritual life, keeps that synthesis right so what i mean is when you become a catholic uh theologian you often specialize right like you were talking with cyrilla about the method of theology and he was talking about the specialization of scripture studies right and how you really do and people don't know this who aren't in academia they don't know this that for literally about 800 years right there was no specialization the catholic faith yeah i mean well like you have this you but you start to get this breakdown probably in the 15 or 1600s but you the the especially in the last like hundred years, there is a total division between scripture studies, dogmatics, or systematic theology, moral theology. So you have like whenever they use the Bible, whether in the dogmatics or moral theology, it's just proof texting. Yeah. So I was gonna say the fascinating thing is like virtue ethics within morality was the way morality was taught, but it relied too much on philosophy. It relied too much on all these other things. And so it gets broken up into like the Catholic spiritual tradition tended to keep virtue ethics, but everything else in ethics was relegated to just natural law theology, yeah. right? Like does this break this law? Does it not? But it was the virtues were kept alive in our spirituality. And you have, I can remember my mom uh, sharing with me devotions from like her childhood. My mom was born in the forties, her childhood devotions and stuff about the hidden life of Jesus, right? Oh, yeah. And oh, like yeah. the emphasis on St. Joseph, we just celebrated the feast day, St. Joseph the worker and how God himself dignified manual labor and the life of the working poor and all this. That becomes, through our prayer and our liturgies, like it becomes a part of our life that we, even though it's forgotten in academia, it's preserved in our spiritual life. Yeah. It was a very long-winded way of saying that. No, I love it. But, uh, you know, I what I would say is, as far as for evangelization goes, I, I think about this often that he didn't like, it didn't have to be the cross mm. and that God played out a drama for us because he knew how, because of his love for us, right? Like it, like this incredible mm. drama that we see, the drama of the cross is so dang compelling and it didn't have to be done. And it, and that is such a, 
a wonderful thought for evangelists that like he he literally um he did more than what he needed to do you know he did more than what he needed to yeah. do to prove love and yeah. we need to do more than what we have to do to prove love you know i i think about this in like the sense that like you know you can you can do the works of mercy through money or you can do the works of mercy with your hands you know and mm-hmm. both of them are works of mercy there's no question you know both of them are but yeah. you can do more right and 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 it's it's compelling yeah yeah and that's why i think I mean, I find the Catechism of the Catholic Church to be one of the most fascinating resources in the Catholic Church because what like what you just said connects me to my reading of Romans lately and Galatians. Like it's so funny that like we'll just take Galatians, six chapters long. It, it, St. Paul is mostly just so angry in in the letter. And it's zeal for the salvation of the community that he helped found, and he's finding them walk away after the, um, you know, the gospel of the of the Jewish Christians that you got to follow Moses if you're going to follow Christ. But in it, he does just what you said just now. It's like you're going to follow Jesus, and this is all the true doctrine of Jesus, and blah blah blah. Now love the poor, carry one another's burdens, shoulder the burden of Christ, love one another, do all this stuff, be a witness to outsiders. Like he just does this shift, and I'm like, where does that come from? And it's funny when I talk to people about Romans. Romans is divided up for most people in three parts, one through eight, which is all about justification, uh, nine through 11, which is all about Christianity's relationship to Israel, and then 12 through 16, which is all about how to live the Christian life. And I'm like, why does it happen like this? And in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, when you're in the 600s and it's going through all the different things on theology of atonement, it ends with our participation in Christ's sacrifice. And it's like, if he did this for you, this is how we live from what he did for you and it's called our participation in christ's cross or christ's sacrifice and you find this move in saint paul over and over again here's the tremendous poverty of christ being one human two uh dying on the cross and now that he's risen for us here's how we live this out love your neighbor as yourself you know uh don't return evil for evil but return good for evil right and all that stuff. And it is fascinating because it's like we can't just get lost in theology without it immediately leading to the service side of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it And you can, you absolutely can when you have a different theory of atonement. Yeah. You absolutely can. Yeah. P- so, penal and, substitution and we, theory yeah. allows for, Yeah. You. All I mean, it could allow for you to do whatever the heck you want. Yeah. So let's talk about penal substitutionary atonement. So in the theories of atonement, you have what is commonly called Christus Victor. Christus Victor was rehabilitated by Gustav something or other about, I think, 50 years ago. He published a multi-volume work on Christus Victor. And it just went through the church fathers and obviously the New Testament on this understanding of the cross as Jesus triumphing over the dark powers. Right, So if you think of it that way, Jesus triumphing over the dark powers by his death, and he allows the forces of darkness to kill him, and they thought they had the victory, but plot twist, Easter, he wins. The fascinating thing with all of this is this is where you get the words ransom and redemption, right? These are deep words of buying back a slave, buying back a captive. But then the question began to be asked towards the end of the early patristic era, who do you pay the ransom to? You pay it to God? Do you pay it to Satan? Right. God doesn't owe Satan anything. And then it got weird because then you have some church fathers being like, 
yeah, God owed Satan something. You're like, well, so then the church steered away from that theology, but then you have the rise of feudalism and then you get people like St. Anselm who come up with a very feudal satisfaction theory of atonement that our sin put us in debt to God and we had to make satisfaction for his infinite justice being offended. So Jesus paid that price for us so that we could be redeemed. That then becomes, 500 years later, penal substitutionary atonement. And this is interesting because there are different ways of taking it, but the penal substitutionary atonement is God took all my sin, put it on Jesus, killed Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead, triumphing over it. So therefore, if I have faith in Jesus, then God doesn't see me when God looks at me. God only sees his son. So it's a penal, meaning the punishment Jesus substituted an innocent for a guilty or a guilty person for an innocent person. Right. Right. He took right. my place. So that's why Dave said the consequences can in, and, in, and even within penal substitutionary atonement, there are nuances. There are different interpretations. People will apply that and say, he did it. Therefore I don't have to do anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And think about what that means for us. I mean, it's a, it, <laughs> it quickly can evolve into a, almost an entirely intellectual salvation, mm-hmm. you know, quickly. This has been deep. Yes. This has been deep. This is, so just think about um, how we started this episode about talking about God, the father hating God, the son, because all he saw is humanity's sin. Christ calls out my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then God pours his whole vengeance on the son the Orthodox theologian that I was listening to is a retired um, metropolitan, which means archbishop. He said, to think that the Trinity could be divided like that is the height of folly yeah. and is utter blasphemy. And when he said that, I was like, oh my goodness, this is this is the song in Christ alone, which I love. But the second verse in Christ alone was is, and the wrath of God was satisfied. Uh, you know, on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And I'm like, we can't sing that in a Catholic church. I love that song, because, but we can't sing it in the Catholic church. Huh. I've right? never, I've, well, I've never caught that line, but yeah. Oh man. I'm always, every time I come to that line, I sing it extra loud and uh, I say <laughs> the name of John Calvin over and over again in my head. Uh, <laughs> You're so weird. I am weird. I am weird. It's you know it's it's a good it's a good topic because for one thing most of us never hear it and also for another thing for evangelists you know um it's it's like what Gomer said you know people always want to know like well what what did Jesus act what did he do for us what did he actually yeah. do for us and I think that that's uh you know having that clear can can make you a lot more confident in your evangelization yeah and the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. It's fascinating because I, I, from what I can tell in Orthodox theology, it begins and ends with, you know, the Paschal mystery, right? Pasch meaning Easter, right? The Paschal mystery is the, it tends to be the only way they view Jesus as the Passover lamb. And that's not a sin offering. Right. Right. That's just, uh, that's, it, it's not a substitutionary atonement. It's not, I'm getting the blood and I'm, I'm offering it up for my sin. And so they will literally call Catholic substitutionary atonement stuff from Anselm and Aquinas and uh, penal substitutionary atonement from Protestants. They lump all that in and call that pagan, yeah. but that is pagan blood sacrifice. But the funny thing is, 
the lamb offered, the Paschal lamb is not atonement. That's not the point. It's not atonement, right? So it's not an offering for sin to blot out sin. But they, Paul uses atonement often. In the book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is Jesus is our high priest, and he's, cel- he's talking about the death of Christ on the cross as a Yom Kippur, a day of atonement, right? He takes our blood into the holy place, right? Or takes his blood into the perfect temple, the heavenly temple with, you know. And so the whole point is like, well, if we narrow it to just the Paschal Lamb and instead don't follow the Catholic way, which is we take all the sacrifices of atonement and satisfaction of the Paschal Lamb and the blood offerings and guilt offerings and peace offerings, Jesus is perfecting all of that, all of that in the cross, And it only gives us a one-sided view if we take one over the other, right? Just like I think it gives us a one-sided view if we only emphasize the death and not the prior incarnation. And we only emphasize maybe the incarnation and the death and we don't emphasize the resurrection, right? Because each one of those is an essential component to the whole. And we need to turn up the symphony instead of dialing, you know, I feel like we're just turning up one instrument to the exclusion of others. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, a little bit off topic, but what you just led me to it is the we we have this this crazy. I think because we limit a, a meme culture, yeah. This this desire to like take our faith down to one line, yeah, that we could express on Twitter or in a meme or something like that. And so many people are trying to do it well, and it shouldn't even be done. That's what we need is a renewal of Catholic intellectual life, not not the opposite. Mm-hmm. We don't need the opposite of that. We really don't. Yeah. Soapbox. We really don't. And so part of this, <laughs> part of this as Catholics is understanding, or as Christians, anyone who listens to this, right, um, is understanding how our theories of atonement lead us to different paths. Um, and some of them don't draw, they draw too much on, like penal substitutionary atonement, too much on the Roman court system rather than the Jewish uh, covenant law system, which I think St. Paul is drawn on. And so as Catholics, the other side of the coin is we mindlessly draw from Protestant presentations of the kerygma. And some of those, and I am guilty of this, some of us are missing the boat in terms of the Catholic view because we hear amazing preachers who preach the gospel really effectively but they leave out certain essentials so that when we try to talk about the sacraments, it becomes very difficult because it's like, well, Jesus already did this. I have faith in him. What more do I need to do? He said it is finished. And it's like, yeah, but his whole life is redemptive. He entered into the whole of human life so that the whole of our lives can be redemptive, not just take away our sin, but to fill us with divine life. And he does it through the sacraments, our nourishment in the Eucharist, our healing in confession, our re- our birth in baptism, like the whole. And it's like, nah, that feels weird. You know, <laughs> that's just, yeah. Jesus paid the debt. That's it. I'm done. So brothers and sisters, we'll be right back with a brief message. <laughs> and then we come back. We're going to give you one or two practical things to help train you in atonement theology. What if you could see that the infinite God is present in your life? What if it was as simple as stopping, opening your heart, and allowing yourself to be found? I'm Danielle Bean, an author, speaker, and host of The Girlfriends Podcast. 
In my new book, Whisper, Finding God in the Everyday, I share wisdom from the saints, real-life experiences, and prayer practices that help you to see, know, and grow closer to God in your everyday life, no matter how busy you are. If you've ever been inspired by stories of great saints but wondered where that leaves the rest of us, this book is for you. In it, we explore how we meet God in joy, pain, other people, prayer, and in the awesome gift of the sacraments. Join me on this journey of letting go, being still, and allowing God to meet us right here, right now, right where we are. Order your copy of Whisper, Finding God in the Everyday at ascensionpress.com. And we're back to Every Knee Shall Bow, talking about the theory of atonement. As always, you know, if you, uh, if you want to contact Gomer or I, we, we get questions almost every day now from people. Feel free to email us at eksb at ascensionpress.com. We love hearing about it. We just finished a successful evangelization boot camp with uh, it was fun. about 105 people. It was five nights, 105 people. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so happy uh, that we were able to do it. And I thought, I thought we, I got great feedback that I'll have to share with you, Gomer. So cool. people were real happy with it. One of the things I want to say before we get to our practical takeaways is just a thank you to our Ascension Press family. Yeah. Um, many of you know out there that my wife's been in the hospital for two and a half weeks and she's home now. But Ascension Press has just been so wonderful about everything, and uh, sent us a you know beautiful flower uh, that we have sitting up on our table right now, and nice. a gift card and everything. So thank you so much to Ascension, and and also just for ha- having us be a part of your community. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Uh, so practically speaking, what we're gonna do? Uh, of course, I'm gonna make this recommendation, and I think this is absolutely crucial. We need to have the correct intellectual understanding. Uh, insofar as the church offers us. So I'm going to say, go to the catechism. You're going to go to part one, the profession of faith, section two on the creed, chapter two, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only son of God, paragraph four, Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Paragraph two, that was article four, paragraph two, Jesus died crucified. And it starts on 595, paragraph 595, and it goes all the way down to paragraph 618, or you can take the Dave Van Vickle easy way out and just do the in briefs. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> we were just talking about how I think we should stop taking the easy way out. Uh, I know. That's why I said that. Practical <laughs> takeaway number two and your last one will be um, what Gomer mentioned. Read uh, Hebrews chapter two. And actually, not just read it, but what I want you to do is take it to prayer for a week. Like every day for a week. Like meditate on Hebrews chapter two and about what that means for our salvation and, and try to try to test it a little bit with your own intellectual savvy, right? To, to say, well, what do I believe about what Christ has done for me? What have I been told? What have I, what have I told other people? And how does that jive with what I'm reading here? Mm. That's awesome. And finally, I'm just going to have one thing for y'all. Let's pray a decade of the rosary for the conversion of what's his name? Uh, your your dissident theologian. <laughs> he's, I think he's dead now. But yeah. oh no, I was hoping he was Johann, alive. Johannes Metz. But you can pray for his soul. We, let's pray for the repose of his soul. Yeah. What what made him dissident? No, I don't. What, I don't. What, what know, I don't know if he was. I mean, he was liberal in in a lot of ways. But there's a funny story where Pope John Paul is taking a picture with all these priests and seminarians, and Johannes Metz, like I guess, comes close to standing to him, and he and he says, "No, no, Johann." Johannes, like you're too close to the Pope for a picture, like a joke because you know because he he often uh, he was often on the other side. I think he was um a, a 
into liberation theology and stuff like that. So I was about to say when when you tend to focus a lot on poverty, yeah. you tend to be a liberation theologian. That's yeah. funny. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. Email us at EKSB at com. God bless y'all. God bless.